This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 397, November the 7th, 1997. Tonight, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and I will discuss, first of all, influences that have been important in our lives. Men, books, events, whatever. Uh, Mark Rushtuni is not with us. He is out firefighting this evening. I'll start off, and the beginning point for me will be my family. My father, my mother, my grandmother, all of them. They were very remarkable people. I'll begin with my grandmother because she's the, was the oldest one in the family and a very remarkable woman. She was twice married. Her second marriage was to my grandfather who was killed when she was left with two children, a newborn baby boy virtually, just weeks old, and a girl about two or three. She was an unusual woman. She was a widow. My grandfather was a widower. The four daughters of my grandfather, father, my mother and three, her three sisters were overjoyed when uh, my grandmother married their father. They thought she was wonderful. And they said it was a double bonus. <laughs> she was someone we loved from the beginning. And, she said, in those days, <clears throat> if a man or a woman were left widowed, then one of the children had the duty of caring for them for the rest of their life. And it was regarded simply as a duty. You didn't doubt it or question it. Uh, you could, if you want, wanted to, walk away and marry somebody. But she said, I never knew anyone who did. And uh, my mother said, we welcomed mother because we loved her and we knew that not one of us for four girls would have to be an old maid taking care of her. I mention that in passing because that was a commonplace thing in the old country and here in the United States. Very wonderful uh, people I have known. People who have done this sort of thing simply because they feel it is their family and their Christian duty. And it sets them apart for life as very remarkable people. In fact, I knew one man, a very wonderful man, whose father died and he was told, you're the oldest of the three boys, son. You are now going to take over the farm and you are going to see your brothers through college because all three of you are very, very intelligent and uh, should have college training, but it will be your duty to help your brothers. He put them through college. They both became professors, and uh, this man was a man of sterling character, 
created a family and in the third generation now you can see the character that uh, he has left there. I just mentioned that in passing. Well, my grandmother had a hard life. Rush, was this your paternal or maternal? Maternal. The Turks killed her second husband, and she was left with uh, one child by her first marriage, an uncle of mine whom I remember very well. He died uh, in 1917 or 18, I've forgotten which. He was in the U.S. Army. Uh, two sons and five daughters. A widow. She had the responsibility. She never complained. I would never have known about the hard life she lived had not my father and mother told me. When... Uh, the massacres began and she was on the march with my parents and other family members from Armenia into Russia. There was a quiet acceptance by faith of what God had ordained. By uh, father and mother and one uh, aunt and uncle and their son, my cousin Edward, had enough funds to make it to this country. The others were going to be left there to be sent for as they accumulated funds. Of course, with a post-war world, Everything fell apart. Russia was in revolution. There was n not much opportunity to get out of Russia. Then you had the horrible famine created by Lenin and his associates who destroyed every kind of production so that uh, neither factories, nor shops, nor farms could function. And millions died in the famine. Uh, Herbert Hoover and the Near East Relief and one or two other agencies sent in a great deal of food. They saved the people of Russia, really. And made possible communism, but of course they did not know the full extent of the evil of that regime and how the famine had been created by it. My mother and the two children survived because she was employed in one of the orphanages that American money had set up. It was painfully difficult work. So many children dying. You had so much food. Whom were you going to keep alive? The food rations were stretched out to the point that even after the famine was ended, Life was so difficult and malnutrition so great that when my grandmother and young aunt and uncle, who were more brother and sister to me, I never called them aunt and uncle because we were, to all practical intent, brother and sister. When they came over here, they had night blindness. Once it was dark, they couldn't see my grandmother never complained. 
I never heard her, nor did anyone in the family, ever say a harsh word about any person or group of people. Not even, in her case, the Turks. With her strong faith, her response to every kind of evil person was the Lord is the judge. He will take care of them. Now, when my uncle, the youngest in the family, just a few years older than I, married, the girl he married, Bertha, had the care of her two elderly parents, both sickly, and it didn't seem as though she would be able to marry. But my grandmother said, I'm going to uh, move in with you, Bertha, and I'll help with all the tasks, which she did. I'll never forget the wedding. After the wedding and the reception, Bertha and my uncle got in the car, my uncle got driving, and in the back seat, Bertha's two aged, feeble parents, and my grandmother. <laughs> That's the Yes, <laughs> took them along. They had to care for them. But that was what she was, a very wonderful person. The only problem she ever had with her children, blood children and stepdaughters, was that all of them wanted her to stay with them. So on the rare occasions when, for a couple of weeks in the year, Bertha got in help to take care of her parents, the girls were always so eager to have her, they loved her so dearly. <laughs> the only time in all the years they ever disagreed was whose place is she going to go to? So she would divide her time equally among them. She got what she wanted at the end. She was briefly ill in the hospital, recovered and came home, was up around and helping her daughter, my aunt, who is still living, 91, 10 years older than I. And then suddenly and quietly she died. A wonderful woman. A really a saintly woman. My mother was, again, a very remarkable person. Unlike my father, she was... Uh, a town girl, a city girl. And when her father was alive, they were fairly uh, well off. Uh, she married my father when uh, uh, well, they became engaged just before she went to college and married after she graduated. They lost their firstborn, whose name was Rusas George, when he was not quite a year old, 11 months and some days. That was at the time of the beginning of the massacres. And because there was no ammunition left, and the Russian uh, troops who were there also <coughs> the imperial troops said we too are going to have to retreat they had to leave it was the infamous and horrible death march they walked until the bottom of their shoes would be totally gone and their feet a bloody pulp and they'd keep moving. 
I never heard my grandmother or mother or anyone else complain uh, about that march. I learned by bits and pieces and from others of the horrors of it, of the attacks by the Turkish cavalry carrying off people and killing others, of the streams they'd passed that were clogged with the dead. And when they finally came to the border to cross into Russia, the two horses that they had and on which they put the two children and occasionally the women alternating. A Russian general had given them the horses and taken over my father's home as his headquarters uh, in the last days of his campaign there in Bonn province. But my father used the horses to get the family across and then stood there to help one person after another, sometimes if they were small, three on the horse, go across the river until finally the Turkish soldiers were in sight. And meanwhile, virtually everyone was across, and then he went across. My mother and her sisters lost their favorite sister, the darling of the family. They never knew what happened to her because she was elsewhere in another community with her family. She lived there. But they heard that that uh, town had been wiped out and everybody in it. A curious thing happened about three or four years ago. My cousin Dora and her husband Sam, who traveled a great deal, were in uh, Jerusalem seeing the last of the sights before they went to the airport. And someone came up and spoke to my cousin Dora in Armenian and called her by a name that she didn't recognize. And she said, that's not my name. And the woman apologized and said, you could be twins with this friend of mine. They got on board the plane and suddenly... It occurred to Dora and haunts her to this day. What if my aunt lived? What if she escaped to Palestine? And this was her daughter, my cousin, that I was mistaken for. Many stories like that. Well... My mother had a great deal to do with my education. Both my parents loved to read, and when we came up to Vallecito, my mother no longer could stay alone as she liked to in her apartment. She came and lived with us, and until her eyesight prevented it, she was an omnivorous reader, delighting in the books that I passed on to her out of my library. Of course, my father read constantly until he went blind. And before he did so, he had memorized 
much of the Old Testament, most of the New Testament, and uh, could speak on a text without reading it because it was committed to heart. His own father, my grandfather, who is a priest in the Church of Armenia, and their priests are married, uh, had been first blinded by the Turks because of his ministry. And he memorized a great deal of the Bible to continue to be able to preach. So then they killed him. My father was a very naive person in that there was no sophistication about him. He had the simplicity as an adult that he had as a child. And the same uh, childlike uh, delight in very simple things. Uh, he could get uh, excited and happy as he saw things growing in the garden or flowers in the yard. The grandchildren adored him because he understood them so well. Rebecca and Joanna to this day, because they remember him very well, the others just barely, think very, very lovingly of him. He was uh, an unusual man in every respect. He studied in Edinburgh, Scotland at the University of Edinburgh, also at Newmount College there. He became a minister in this country. He'd been a professor in the old country before the war. From the time I was... Uh, toddler, he would uh, take me with him, often carrying me in his arms, and he would talk to me a great deal about anything that interested him. And He told me a great deal about the heavens, the stars, so that my first ambition, uh, well, my very first was to be a farmer because I loved the farm. And then after, oh, I think about the third grade, it was to be an astronomer. But... Uh, he was an omnivorous reader, and I became the same with a deep love of books. He found it hard to throw anything away that was printed, and I have the same kind of uh, feeling. We had a very wonderful uh, family. My sister is dead. My brother is still living. I was the eldest after, of course, Rusas George, who died in the old country. Well, I've gone on too long. Uh, why don't one of you start? How about you, Douglas? And then we can continue with you, Andrew, later on. Well, <clears throat> I guess each of us bears the stamp of our family history. On my father's side, they immigrated to this country from the island of Skye off the coast of Scotland in the early 1800s and settled around the Great Lakes, actually in the United States, and then crossed over into Canada later on. And my 
my grandfather was a uh, surveyor for the Canadian Pacific Railroad and uh, he had promised to marry my grandmother before they were engaged before he left to go across Canada to uh, survey the, the track for the uh, uh, Canada's uh, transcontinental railroad. Apparently they're not very many Indians or virtually no Indians in the interior. Most of the Indian tribes apparently lived along the coast or around, right around the Great Lakes. So in some of the provinces they they would go for months and never see another human being. And there was just uh, there were uh, three or four of them in the survey team. My grandfather and his his brother and a couple of other fellows and I have pictures of them, and they look like they're right out of, you know, look like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> Some pretty rough looking guys. Uh, about six foot four, six foot six, and a big handlebar mustache, and uh, yeah, they don't look like people you'd want to get angry at you. But uh, the touching thing is that uh, my. Uh, grandfather wrote letters and occasionally they would run into a fur trapper and asked that on his way back to the trading post if he would uh, try and get these things mailed. Well I have those letters and um, they uh, tell of the very lonely uh, isolation out there in that country. And uh, later, I uh, had some letters where he, after he got out there, he homesteaded a piece of uh, land in the, the province of Saskatchewan. And by himself, uh, with nothing but a couple of animals, he cleared this section of land. Uh, this is cutting the trees, pulling the stumps, and tilling the ground. And... Uh, he would recite from memory long passages of poetry, uh, what he knew, the Kipling and Longfellow and so forth, but uh, he would explain to my grandmother, who was waiting until he got the homestead ready for her to come out, uh, about the loneliness and what he saw, the birds that, you know, migratory birds that he would see and the animals that he would see and so forth. And I guess he would, <laughs> he was reciting his poetry to the two uh, big uh, draft horses. I guess they were about the size of Clydesdales. They have enough horsepower to pull a plow through that un previously unbroken ground and pull stumps out. But uh, uh, the, the letters are uh, uh, quite uh, tender and romantic uh, for a man of his uh, stature and uh, you know it's hard to know I I knew him as a child we used to go up to Canada and I knew him uh, when he was in his probably his 80s and um, he, I think he died when he was around 95 <clears throat> but uh, they raised uh, 12 children, uh, birthed all the way across Canada from Saskatchewan to British Columbia, where they finally settled. And my grandfather was, in addition to being a farmer and have several uh, hardware stores, uh, general stores in Alberta and so forth, uh, different places, Gleesh in Alberta and various places where they settled as they came west, he was also a coppersmith and uh, which was a trade that was passed on to him by his father. Apparently in, in Scotland, uh, I have a model of a boat that my great-grandfather built, which was a very wide beam, short uh, boat, very tough uh, boat, that they used for fishing in the North Sea. And the North Sea is very uh, rough, and I guess they would fish during what they, what little summer they had, and then uh, when they were shut in during the winter, why well, he would make uh, copper pots for 
but I guess hung in people's fireplaces where they did their cooking. <coughs> and he was quite an artisan. And um, I have a uh, a flower vase. It's a beautiful thing, uh, all hammered, and uh, it was done with old world. Uh, technique where they would take a piece of hardwood and carve it out to half the shape of the, of the vase that they wanted and then they would take a flat sheet of copper and meticulously uh, hammer it or, or paint it as they called it until it fit the shape and then they would uh, cut the excess and then they would do two halves of that and fit them together and silver solder them together so fine that you had to look with a magnifying glass to see the seam between the two halves. And um, that's, that was quite a piece of work. My grandmother was a, a remarkably industrious woman. She had a, I remember as a child, a large uh, wood stove in the kitchen, which was always going and kept the house toasty and warm. The kitchen was the big gathering place for the family. And uh, she baked 12 loaves of bread a week on that wood stove and everything came out perfect. <laughs> she uh, liked to bake uh, uh, what she called tarts, which were, you know, uh, cherry tarts and berry tarts and so forth. Uh, little uh, treats to give the kids, the, the youngest ones that would come and visit her. She always had a treat for the for the grandchildren when they came. And I can remember during World War II, my grandfather uh, had this great big cathedral radio sitting in the parlor, and the parlor was really neo-Victorian and had this uh, red uh, satin. A covering on it and uh, it all looked like museum pieces to me but I guess it was uh, the thing to have in their day but uh, I was about six years old and I remember I had found a huge pear on the pear tree in the backyard and I came running in while Gabriel Heater or H.V. Kaltenborn or something was delivering the news of the night. <laughs> Boy, I got hushed in a hurry. <laughs> My grandfather glowered at me. <laughs> you didn't interrupt the news at 6 o'clock. <laughs> yes, especially during the war years. Yeah. People sat glued yeah. to the radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was uh, a very warm... Uh, family, the, all of the, uh, uh, my cousins and aunts and uncles would come over on uh, Saturday evening, and of course there was no television, nobody just sat and listened to the radio. Uh, it was all, what have you been doing over the past week, it was all conversation and, and family socializing, and uh, some people would play whist or 500 or some card game or something or other. And uh, they would uh, play cards until midnight and then uh, all go home and uh, get ready to go to church in the morning. But the, uh, my mother's side of the family uh, uh, came from uh, Germany uh, around the time of World War I uh, into Pennsylvania. And, of course, they suffered the... Uh, uh, being social outcasts, they were <laughs> they were called Pennsylvania Dutch, which was a euphemism for people who were trying, I guess, hide their their uh, uh, background where they came from. But uh, my grandmother uh, was a uh, Relation uh, somehow I never got it straight of Kit Carson the Explorer, oh, mm -hmm. and um, uh, she was a uh, she read the Bible. I remember that as a very young child, and I think I went in in all naivety and just asked her straight out. I said, Grandma, why do you read the Bible so much? What was her denominational? Uh, well, I, I'm not, not sure what church 
she went to. I just, you know, wasn't old enough really to be that that aware. I remember that she went, but uh, she read the Bible a lot. But I just asked her straight out one day why she read the Bible, and her answer was because it's the most important book in the world and the most important one that you'll ever read. And uh, she was uh, quite emphatic about it. <laughs> My uh, my grandfather on my mother's side um, was a farmer, and uh, they, unfortunately for them, chose to go to Oklahoma in the 20s and started a farm there when the Dust Bowl came along. And they were forced to leave because all the wells dried up and they had horrendous dust storms that destroyed the crops. Uh, made it impossible to farm, and they left and uh, came out to uh, California. And he had some education and got a job with PG&E, hooking up gas meters or something. And uh, they made out okay. They finally they moved to San Jose, and they had a little ranch there. And uh, they ultimately sold the land to uh, what is now the property that Apple Computer is sitting on. Oh, man. <laughs> So it's uh, an, an interesting journey on both sides, but religion played a big part in both sides of the family, and um, uh, church was uh, important on both sides of the family, particularly in the grandparents' years, because it's it's what got them through the hard times. Without them, without it. Uh, it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for them to survive. They, I think that people today don't realize the hardships that all of our grandparents and yes. great-grandparents have gone through. Uh, we tend to trivialize it and uh, uh, because they didn't make too much of it. Because to them, it was more normal than abnormal to go through that kind of hardship and deprivation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, homesteading. In fact, my grandmother, as a child, was in the Oklahoma run in the panhandle where they opened up the mm -hmm. panhandle of Oklahoma, and she was in a, a covered wagon. It remembers, as a child, riding in the covered wagon when the, the, uh, the gun went off and they all crossed over the line and went out into that territory to homestead uh, a piece of land, to farm. So we uh, we have to uh, reach back and realize that uh, uh, if we think it's tough today, it was a hundred times yeah. tougher yes. in their day. Yes, and we don't appreciate what I remember vividly as a child: the pleasure people took in going to church. Hearing the, ser the sermon, singing the psalms, and standing around and visiting with friends and neighbors. Tremendous sense of community. Well, that's another thing that I remember as a child is that uh, whenever people got together, someone played an instrument and yes. they all sang. Yes, that, that was the entertainment that rather was, than TV. That was the entertainment. I mean, they, they weren't having a good time unless they were singing. That kind of singing went out with World War II. Before that, everybody sang on mm -hmm. a, a, a slightest occasion at the drop of a hat, mm -hmm. and with pleasure. Now it seems there's more of the obsession with professional singing yes. rather than uh, individuals. Well, Andrew? Well, I won't be any different than either Rush or... Douglas, I was born into a very devout Christian family. Uh, my parents are both old-fashioned, Bible-believing Baptists. Um, I should go back a little bit. Um, racially, I'm uh, Irish and English. My mother's maiden name is Hopkins, which is a very standard British mm -hmm. name. And Sandlin, English or Irish. I had an ancestor on my mother's side that came over on the Mayflower. 
But um, I guess the best way to begin with my background is to say that all of my life has been conditioned in Christianity, so I don't really think of anything else. Um, my father's been a Baptist pastor and evangelist for oh, 40 some years now. And uh, my mother, who was saved at a very young age, he was converted in a revival meeting at 24. She was converted as a Sunday school girl, about 12 years old. Um, I have great affection for them, obviously, as you men do for your parents. They trained me in historic biblical Christianity. Give you an example of that. I'll never forget my first job was my father was pastoring a church in Florida. I must have been all of about six or seven years old. And he needed someone to sort of pull the weeds around the large church building. I think I was hired for five dollars a week to pull all the weeds around the church building. I remember the first time that I got paid the five dollar bill, my father sat me down and he said, now son, the Bible teaches that you should tithe. And that's 10%. 10% on $5 is 50 cents. And you can give more, but you owe to God 50 cents. He says, please understand that this is not something there's any question about. It's just it belongs to God. Well, all of my life I've never had one problem, one problem tithing in the most difficult times. Not because of any goodness in me, but because we were just trained that that's the way you live your life. It couldn't be any other way. That's why when I encountered Van Til's The Defense of the Faith and other works and Rush's Institutes and his, his other works, it was so natural. Um, I was taught that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God. My parents both have a great love and belief in the authorized or King James Version, which I share. And uh, therefore, it was just natural to accept that all of the Bible is true and that all of the Bible applies to all of life. Um, go back and mention there's also some strong old-fashioned Methodists in my background. My dad tells a story of his... Uh, grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, who was an old-fashioned Methodist who liked to dip snuff. Mm. She would sit in her old chair and have her hair in a bun and would dip snuff and read her Bible at her little <laughs> splatoon. And she would thoroughly enjoy uh, doing that. Um, because of this, and Rush, I know that you probably feel much the same. It just never occurred to me that Christianity could not be true, yes. that the Bible is not the Word of God, that Jesus is not the Son of God, or so forth. So even though I didn't know it at the time, presuppositional, what we today call presuppositional thinking, was just the natural way of thinking to me. Uh, there was never any question about verifying the faith. The faith wasn't meant to be verified. It was meant to be believed and applied, you know. Um because of that, I and it may sound odd to evangelicals, but I don't ever remember getting saved. Um, no doubt there was a time of regeneration. The Bible teaches that if we are truly converted. That frightens some people when I tell them that, but it doesn't frighten anybody who grew yes. up in a Christian home. A covenant child. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting, though, though my parents are not... Um, theoretically or theologically covenantal, yet their actions are so strongly uh, covenantal. And I think that's true in the in the homeschooling movement. Not everybody yes. in the homeschooling movement is technically uh, committed to reform theology. And yet, in essence, the homeschooling movement is all about the practice of reform yes. or covenant theology. Um I was trained in a in a Christian school all my life. As a matter of fact, I didn't encounter public education until I stepped into a, to do doctoral studies in a, uh, in English in a, in the state university. 
and by then my thinking was so solidified in, in historic Christianity and Van Tilian apologetics and Rashtuni's uh, approach to the faith that there was nothing that could tear it down. And I thank a Christian family for that and of course secondarily to, to Rush who's been such a deep influence uh, on my life. I look at Rush as first at my parents who trained me in the faith and then at Rush as sort of the continuation onto the next level of a full application of the faith in all areas of life. Um, but that's sort of a little of my background. I want to echo what you men said about the past. I hear stories about uh, some of my relatives. My dad's dad was he was a milkman just about all of his life back when uh, the milk was delivered of course to the door and uh, by horse drawn uh, carriages my dad tells the story I remember. yes my dad tells the story about the fact that his he knew his horse so well and the horse knew him so well that he would at several stops just sort of get out and say I'll meet you up there and he would go over and make a couple of stops and the horse would just sort of walk down mm -hmm. the proper number of blocks and would just stop right there and be waiting and um, his wife they divorced later This they were not Christians at the time was a, just a very hard working woman who had little education but scrubbed floors for a living speaking about hard working she was scrubbing floors for a living into her sixties and early seventies babysitting just to get enough money to get by a dear christian woman they're all christians now uh... those that are still alive a couple of the grandparents are dead my maternal grandfather was a truck driver for years and years a lot of them by the way came from kentucky I don't know if you know, Ohioans call people from Kentucky bra hoppers. That's one of their uh, briar hoppers, one of their terms of sort of friendly derision. But uh, many of them migrated to Ohio, and um, all of them say, virtually all of them on both sides of those still living, the younger ones, almost all profess Christianity. Um, many Baptists, some Reformed, some non-denominational. But I'll conclude with this. I, so many things I could say, but um, i never forget that for years my father would always put in his Bible a picture of the cross. I have three siblings. So there are four children. And, uh, of course, the, the cross has four points to it, and he would put my name on the top and my brother's name here and my sister's name on the side and the other sister on the bottom, always with the prayer that the entire family would be Christian. And he strongly believed in household salvation, and God has honored his and my mother's faith. She's a dear soul, has an operatic voice, would sing with him on his crusades and preaching the old hymns and old gospel songs. He jokes that some of the ministers where he preached say, we don't really like your preaching, but we have to get your wife, get you in order to get your wife to get her to sing. So that's why we invite you to come. But um, never heard her say a cross word. Uh, just a dear Christian woman. But um, those have been the main events. I think, you know, think of Van Til's little book, but Why I Believe in God, and he begins with his discussion about the fact that he was just taught in his Dutch family that yes. Christian. Well, I, I feel just the same way. It could not be otherwise. And I thank God for it. Well, the family was very, very strong. Uh, in the era before World War II and in the generations before. I know that uh, when I was growing up and in high school, the uh, aunts, my grandmother and uh, three aunts would come together regularly uh, in one home or another, bake bread together for all the families, and uh, do a great deal like that, you know, that uh, was routine. They'd make the f big flat bread 
which will keep indefinitely and pile it high and then they'd make the round uh, bread like a sheep herder's bread which it really was in the old country they'd work together like that and Sunday dinners were held together all of us at one home or another and uh, it was a wonderful thing each Sunday all the years we were on the farm and then when we came back to the farm everyone together very happy and harmonious the family could depend on uh, the larger family for anything any crisis they'd be put up if they didn't have a place to stay they'd be helped out uh, it was just taken for granted that that was the way you did things that was fairly common across country and I remember vividly when the depression hit how many many families had the children come back go into their own, own old bedroom with their wife and children so that there'd be two or three families under one roof and nobody thought that was unusual it was accepted that this is what families were for to love one another and to care for one another it was a very wonderful way of life in the Bible the family is the basic institution and we've forgotten that and the thing that makes me value so highly the homeschool movement is that it is restoring the family to its proper place. The Christian school is a big help, but the homeschool is even better yes, at this. Yes, that's right. So I think we're in the midst of uh, a great change in this country that we're not only going to see a revival of Christianity, but it's going to begin in the home. It's not That's going right. to begin in churches Absolutely. and campaigns by the clergy. It's going to begin in the home. And I'm seeing it already. Yes. I can uh, go on at length about some of the families on the Calcedon mailing list, people who support us the remarkable family life they have, the high caliber of their children. It's a, a very important thing, and we're just seeing this yes. come to the fore, and, say, in the past 10, 15 years. Right. It was not there before. The family was tending to disintegrate. Now, of course, you have the disintegration in the non-Christian realm, but in the Christian, a remarkable uh, resurgence of family life. And that's how we're going to turn things around and are turning things around. Yes. It is going to be not only an uh, intellectual, theological thing, which is what we're trying to do here at Calcedon, but it's going to be something rooted in the family. I was about to say, before you mentioned that, Rush, I think all of these people that think they're going to turn things around by evangelistic crusades really have it just backwards. Yes. I mean, we've had 30 or 40 years, you know, of this crusade evangelism. I mean, even after the Billy Sunday era. And, well, most of it's Armenian anyway, but even if it weren't, I think it's missing the whole point. There can't yes. be revival in the church until there's revival in the family. That's right. It's interesting... Uh I taught, run into people that are homeschooling, and uh, some of the women who, for one reason or another, uh, didn't finish high school, they get excited about learning because they see yes, their kids getting right. excited, and they go back and get their high school uh, diploma. That's right. I've seen young mothers who... Uh, were products of the public school 
and barely capable of reading and writing become highly literate and well-educated mm-hmm. because they started with their children, taught them step by step, and themselves learned everything. You know, women, the women's movement has talked about empowerment. The women that I've talked to that have gotten involved in homeschooling with their kids, that's the one thing that uh, this really gives them empowerment. Yes, it is does. Is to take charge of that Absolutely. responsibility back in the home again. And it's, they, they, I don't think many of them realize that they lost it until mm-hmm. they rediscovered it, and then they realized what they'd, <clears throat> what they'd lost. Well, the family at one time was the normal way of life. And the urge to create families was very strong. Now, I mentioned earlier that my father did his uh, graduate work in Scotland. Well, when he went there, uh, he stayed with uh, a childless married couple uh, the Olivers, John Oliver. And uh, he not only had a marvelous family life, but he became their son. And uh, all the time I was growing up, I was writing letters to Granny Oliver. She was another grandmother. And uh, John Oliver died... Uh, when I was quite young, but Granny lived for a long, long time, and all through the years, every Christmas, not only would she send my father something, but us children, and me in particular, because my middle name, John, was from John Oliver, and I almost got named uh, John Oliver Rushdooney. At any rate, uh, she gave me many books, some of which I still have, with the notation that it was to Johnny from Granny, Christmas 1925 or something like that. She gave me uh, magazine subscriptions to uh, Scottish and British boys' magazines, uh, book about Edinburgh. I came to know Edinburgh so well that uh, when I first went there in 1987, I could recognize things, and in a few areas I knew my way around just from all that reading. Well, our time is almost up. Is there something any either of you would like to add? Well, I would encourage everyone who has not done so to go back as far as they can in their family tree and uh, get a, a picture, a snapshot of what life was like through letters, recollections of uh, still living... Uh, uh, grandparents, and uh, find out what you've lost. Yes. Uh, because it's uh, an enormous uh, reservoir of experience and the ability to deal with the difficulties of life mm-hmm. is there for the taking, but very few people ask. Yes. Another thing to do, which our family does, is to have regular family reunions. Uh, We have them uh, currently every year at my brother's place. Uh, Occasionally we have other reunions and uh, while my Aunt Ranush, who is the third oldest, second after my mother, was still alive, and she died a few weeks shy of 100. We had an annual reunion on her birthday as well as the one at my brother's. 
was wonderful. And uh, today people very often don't know their grandparents' name or have never seen their cousins. I find that uh, hard to understand. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.